0: progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law
1: welcome to inside the tunnel brought to you by vt scoop 24 7 sports my name is andrew alex joined today by two-thirds of the normal cast mate says nowhere to be found but we do have evan watkins back evan how you doing
2: i'm good i'm good so with mate
0: not here that's the cue to keep listening
1: doug looks like you trimmed the beard a little bit how you feeling about it
0: yeah, keeping a little tighter these days, heading into the summer gets a little hot, you know, got to, got to, got to keep it at a different level. We're at the five millimeter trim instead of the seven millimeter trim. A little inside baseball for you.
1: You should just dedicate an entire <laughs> thread on the board to beard upkeep. We'll pin it to the top just in case anyone needs any uh, insight dropped on them.
0: The secret to beard upkeep is to go to a really nice barber and have them do it for you. There you have it, I folks. just need to know how to keep. I need to know how to keep
2: mine from being gray, but I think age That's and children have a lot to do
0: with that. That's a lost cause. Yeah, I think I'm fighting. A, I'm fighting uphill
1: <laughs> here. Right, try that just for men stuff. I don't know. It's uh...
0: if anybody here works
1: for Just for Men, we're open to sponsors. We are. We are indeed. We got Tyrell Smith sponsored. Now we're getting ourselves sponsored, even though we are sponsored. And thank you for listening to those ads, folks. But in between the ads, <laughs> we have a lot of content to talk about. I guess we should get started off with a new commitment for the class of 2023 and following the pattern of the first two. It's a big dude. This one, a local Hannes Hammer which just has all kinds of NIL potential written all over it, just from the name, Evan, the local interior offensive lineman comes home. Tell us about him.
2: Yeah. I mean, first off, I'm going to say that he's, he's slotted wrong on the site. I don't see him interior at all. Um, I think he's going to be a true tackle. I actually got a chance to see him on Saturday. He was at the track meet while I was uh, visiting some family in Roanoke. So I got a chance to go by and see him, take some pictures of him and, you know, to me, everybody's big, you know, but he he's a legitimate six six. Uh, he's got a lot of room to fill out. I'd say probably two seventy five right now two eighty. Um, he looks really good. and uh, you know, nice kid. I got to talk to one of his coaches as well that was with him. Um you can tell he genuinely likes Virginia Tech. I think one of the interesting things was just talking to him about it was, uh, That his mother and brother are very involved, even though they are still in Germany. So, you know, he's got uh, some motivation that is not in America, um, which I think is I think is interesting. And I think it's something that could that could play to his favor. Um, You know, when he was looking at his recruitment, uh, he didn't have the power five offers yet. And he works with a program called Gridiron Imports. Um, and they're, they're a European country, uh, company that puts, uh, that places football players in, you know, private schools in America with the expectation of trying to earn a scholarship. Um, now they do a huge summer camp tour. I don't know exactly how many schools it is, but typically when you have guys like the, like that program or PPI or a few of the other ones, they typically will fly into a bigger city, you know, because it's you know international airport. Fly into like a New York or maybe Boston or, or like a Charlotte, and then they hit every school imaginable in the region that they flew into for like a week period, week and a half, and do camps. So you'd be, you know, if you flew into Charlotte, you'd probably camp at Charlotte, UNC, NC State, Duke. Virginia, Virginia Tech, Old Dominion, William & Mary. Try to hit as many as possible. Go up to Maryland and and, and just kind of keep doing those. So he was planning on doing that. He was going to hit a bunch of schools and do a bunch of camps. And then Virginia Tech offered and shut everything down, essentially. Um, it was a mutual decision to for him to commit and not do any camps. Um, he wants to enjoy some time back with his family. He hasn't seen them in a while. Uh, get back to see his mom. Get back to see his brother. And uh, Virginia Tech obviously didn't really want him out there showcasing in the event other schools would offer. He's a guy that has a lot of upside. Um, I know I I know personally someone who has coached him um, in camps. So this isn't one of his high school coach, but somebody that has worked with him in, in the Roanoke area that said he's very teachable and he's very athletic. He's obviously big, but as any newish to football person is he's, he's raw at the position. So he's going to have a low floor, high ceiling type of guy. Um, he's not someone that you should ever expect to come in and play right away, but he's somebody that I think you let marinate in the system for a few years and then uh, can can get some good quality time out of the back end of their career. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting with him is he was actually recruited a little bit under uh, Justin Fuente's staff, had been to campus, had been to to a couple games. But it really wasn't until Brent Pry came and and Joe Rudolph came in that they really kind of amped that up. And, um, you know, the kind of the minute they learned about him, they got him on the phone and said, hey, can you swing on up? It's uh, You know, it's only a 45-minute drive or so. And he said, you know, I can, but I'm going to Charlotte. I think he was going to to a Rivals event. Um, so he actually came up, I think it was the second day or might've been the first night of spring practice, came up for about 30 minutes, saw a little bit of practice, um, and talked to Daniel Milita, which I think was, was interesting. Um, he, he said, when I talked to him over the weekend, he said that, uh, they greeted each other in English because that's just kind of your courtesy right now in America. You greet in English until it kind of clicked that they both spoke German. And then they could speak German around their high school coaches and the Virginia Tech coaches, and no one knew what they were talking about. Um, and he said flat, flat out, he just asked Daniel the differences between Vice and between Joe Rudolph, and what he liked about Virginia Tech. Um, it only took a few minutes, and from that, from that point on, it was kind of a uh, you know, if Virginia Tech offered, they were probably going to be one of the, the top schools uh, for him. Um, Virginia Tech obviously has a a history as a university of exchange students and and guys from overseas so you know I think they can cater to him well there Uh, and then you know they got him on campus a few times um, got him up again for the spring game and it was you know from from everything I've heard every time he showed up the the conversations got better he looked better and and they were just more sold on him every time he came to campus so They did a spring eval on him, went and had him do a workout. I believe it was before school uh, on a Friday morning, had him do a workout. And I I heard from some of the North Cross coaches that Joe Rudolph was, uh, you know, he was very impressed, obviously, with the workout. But he was also uh, very, you know, he was networking while he was there. By the time he left, every coach at North Cross had his cell phone number and everybody knew how to get a hold of him. So, you know, I think that that was impressive uh, and impressed their staff. Uh, and then two days later, they offered him, and it didn't take long. I think it was maybe maybe a week later he called and committed to the staff, and then waited, I think two, maybe three days uh, before he announced it. So, you know, like I said, he's, he's a guy that's he, he's not going to be a, a, a high ceiling or I'm sorry, a high floor type of guy. You don't bring him in and think he's a guy that can compete for reps year one year two but he's a guy that uh, I think you you look at the athleticism and the size the way he moves and just his body style he's he's a true tackle Um, and those guys are hard to find right now so you know I think it's a smart take and uh, you know it's a little bit of a risk but I think it can play out for him and and you know from what I've heard from the guys that have worked with him if he's teachable which everybody I've talked to says he is there's not very many O-line coaches in the country that I think are better at teaching than Joe Rudolph. So we'll see if he surprises some guys down the road, but I think it was a smart take for Virginia Tech. He's a local guy and he's got some upside. So, you know, I think guys like that, uh, they obviously his size don't grow on trees. So go ahead and take him.
1: You look at the pattern here. And of course our friends on the boards getting a little concerned early on in the period that Virginia Tech Hadn't really gotten anything going for that 2023 class. And, you know, you have two offensive linemen and a defensive lineman. Is that some sort of strategy to secure those guys first? Or is that just how the cards have fallen?
2: You know, I think when you look at it, when you're coming into a new situation, like Brent Pry was coming into a new situation, he had uh, a brand new roster. He has spring workouts. He has to figure out what his 23 class is going to look like. Then he has to also see who's going to leave from that spring roster and see what they can attack in the transfer portal. So when you take all of that into consideration with the other, you know, ins and outs of recruiting, he had a lot on his plate to figure out the 2023 class. How many of this am I going to take? How many? How many running backs do I need? How many wide receivers do I need? How many linebackers do I need? You know, you, you, the typical stuff that every coach has to figure out. But the the two positions you can never take enough of is O-line and D-line. You have to take as many as you can to be able to, you know, to to be able to be a competitor in the ACC or in any level of football. If you have a thin O-line or a thin D-line, you're not going to win a lot of games. Um, So I think it was smart of while we figure out everything else, you know, we'll figure out if we're going to take two or three wide receivers or we'll figure out. Uh, you know, how many corners versus safeties we need. You go ahead and you take some linemen on both sides of the ball if they're ready to commit. You know, Lance Williams was a guy similar a little bit to to Benji Gosnell of he just wanted to know that Virginia Tech still liked him um, after the, the coaching staff turnover happened. He was sold on Virginia Tech. He just needed to know that they still wanted him um, once they let him know that he was he was locked in and and ready to rock and roll. Abby's a guy that was a little bit different. Um, you know, they the, the staff went and saw him and put a little pressure on him, wanted him to go ahead and commit. They wanted an in-state guy. Um, they thought he could be a guy that could, uh, you know, be a good cornerstone of the class. They, they liked his potential and liked that he's a guy from Richmond, and they're targeting a lot of guys uh, from Richmond for this, uh, this cycle. So go ahead and put a little bit of pressure on him and, and see if you can get him locked in. And, and obviously they did there. And then and then Hammer is just, you know, he's that guy. He's 45 minutes down the road, and he's from a body type and from a, a size standpoint that is hard to come by. So you take the guys like that now while you try to figure out your skilled positions and you try to figure out your, uh, your other positions on the field and the numbers that they will be. Now I think you're starting to see a lot more of that uh, come together we're starting to see a little bit more patterns in recruiting, especially lately. And I've mentioned this on the board. And by the time this comes out tomorrow, there'll be another name added to the list, but they're looking at some late junior college ads and the defensive back in the secondary. So, uh, you know, I think that they can see that there's a clear um, need right now there. And, You may not have to go transfer portal for it. If you can get a guy out of JUCO that can graduate in May, uh, you could get him in in the summer and get at the minimum of probably two years plus a red shirt. Some of them, maybe, you know, maybe they were academic qualifiers out of high school, so they don't have to have their associates to get in. And they could be a four-year guy. So, you know, I think they're looking at that as well, trying to figure that out for immediate help. Uh, while they still try to factor in what's going to go down the road, I, I put out something uh, earlier tonight, just in one of the threads of some guys that I think will either expire their eligibility or could move on out of uh, uh, after the 2022 season. Uh, simply not transfer portal, but guys that might test the NFL waters, or maybe they've just been in school for so long and they're not getting the reps they think they should get. Maybe they look at uh, you know starting their career and hanging it up. And I think we, I think my my number was around 18. And then you add in some possibles in there too. I think you're looking at 22, 23 guys in, in a typical cycle that could be heading out after the 22 season before you look at any type of transfer portal or attrition. So what looked like a class that could be kind of small, I think this 23 class could actually be fairly large. And, and when you're, you know, when you're trying to figure all that out and you're trying to dial into what numbers you want and who you want and what your board looks like and who are your top targets and all of that, you know, everything all these coaches have to go through the two positions you're not going to turn down is an early O-line or D-line commit. So, you know, I think the Hokies were smart in doing that and they need to continue growing those rooms while they fill out the rest of their board.
1: Doug, I want to turn to you because Evan just said, there's one position that you can't have too many of, and that is the offensive line. However, You can't have too many running backs, and going into spring practice, Virginia Tech certainly did, but that crop has thinned. We saw Jordan Brunson enter the transfer portal. He's now with Miami of Ohio. We saw Marco Lee, a favorite of this podcast, enter the transfer portal. He's now with the University of South Alabama. We have also seen Jalen Hampton enter the transfer portal, and as far as I know, he has yet to find a home. As you look at this group, do you think that i I suppose was there any real net loss here a- and where or how does the room shake out as a result of this?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think any of those were surprising if you looked at the depth chart or any projected depth chart heading into the spring, those were those were probably the guys on the on the list. I mean, if you remember going back to the fall, Brunson and Hampton weren't with the team until late late August they had to wait until uh school was back in session to make the roster sizes fit uh so you know, I don't think Virginia Tech lost much of anything with those defections um th- those are those were five six seven eight on the depth chart so uh, but you know basically what I expected to happen happened in terms of players leaving from that room and you you still got Thomas. King and Black, Holston, and, and then Bryce Duke is the freshman there, you know, five running backs, that's probably, uh, that's probably still way more in line than, than what they had entering this, um, entering the spring from what they needed. So from, from that perspective, I think that was, uh, mission accomplished from evening out, evening out that room a little bit. Uh, that, it certainly sounds like Malachi Thomas is going to be the starter there, uh, cry called him the most well-rounded back the guy that does does the most things most well um i think is is the verbiage he used there so you know i think it's a malachi thomas Jalen holston as a as number two guy and then and then i really think there's a battle between kashawn king and chance black there through the summer and the into, into august I, I think they're redundant in their skill sets and what they can do and I think they're, they're looking for, you know, a big play change of pace type back that they can line up both in the backfield and, and probably in the slot and bring them in motion and all that kind of stuff. That's not a huge role. So I don't think you need, you know, I, I'm not sure there's enough reps there to, to split time between King and Black. I think you'll we, we'll really see one of those two guys emerge there. And then, you know, that's a Thomas Holston King Black rotation. Um, that seems that seems like a pretty stable group and and kind of what you're
1: looking for. Evan, on the offensive line, Bryce Goodner enters the transfer portal. He ultimately ends up with Chattanooga. This is the guy who I believe was on scholarship uh, in a room lacking scholarship offensive lineman. Can we chalk this up to a situation where, you know, Joe Rudolph and the gang just didn't think he could make the cut? Or, or what's the deal?
2: Yeah, you know, I think he's a guy that, uh, you know, late in spring camp, they even moved him from, uh, from O line to D line. So you got some reps of D line for, you know, a few weeks as well. I think, I think just he didn't fit. I think he fit what Vice liked. You know, I think he was kind of a guy built in that Brock Hoffman type of mold, um, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a mauler inside, but isn't going to be overly, Massive, you know, he's not a guy that's six six. He's not six five. He's, you know, six probably six two, six three range or so. I just think he, I, I think he just didn't fit the mold. They wanted to see if he could do it on D line. Uh, I think that there was probably an honest conversation that had to happen there and say, you know, with with what we're looking to do and and what we're going towards, it's going to be D line or or nothing at Virginia Tech. And. You know, I think the writing was on the wall there, uh, and I think he wants to be an O-lineman. Uh, I think, didn't Chattanooga just have an O-lineman drafted really high? I think I think that's, I think I remember Patriots seeing that. took
0: Patriots took, uh, I don't know his name, but it was in the first round.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you could do worse, right? Like, you know, you're going to take the step down and, and, and go to Chattanooga, but... I think he could have a really good productive career there. Um, I just think he doesn't isn't really a fit for what Virginia Tech's looking for in a room that is already thin to have been moved from the o line. i think I think that's interesting and and probably says that he just wasn't a fit for what they're trying to do moving forward.
0: I, I think Goodner, that situation is kind of reflective of offensive line recruiting in general and why it's so important to take four or five guys there every year. Um, but, you know, it's a crap shoot in terms of it's, it's one of the hardest positions to evaluate and, and get right. Um, you know, Virginia Tech's best offensive lineman in years was Christian Darasol. And he was certainly under-recruited. Um, I, you could even go back way long ago. And one of the best, <laughs> one of the best offensive line recruits that ever landed was Aaron Brown out of Ohio. And, he, he wasn't any good and never panned out of Virginia tech so i mean it, it, there's so many so many ways that an offensive line recruit could go and like some some people it just became clear that they're just not good enough to play at the power five level quickly and, and i think that's i think that's largely what happened here and largely why you have to take four or five guys a year because you're just not going to go 100 percent on on them consistently enough you just need those numbers to kind of to so that you're in good shape when you need to be
1: that's exactly right but now the room is so thin for the offensive line how many whether it be transfers whether it be juco guys additions should we expect to see added to that room you know over the course of the late spring here i know some schools maybe haven't finished up yet Most of them probably have at this point, and as we head into fall camp, how many more additions need to be made for Virginia Tech in order to stay viable this season? I think at least two,
0: maybe even three, as many as they can take. I think we've covered it pretty extensively. The offensive line picture, in terms of they feel good about the top five. If one guy goes down, or if one of those guys just isn't good, isn't as good as they hoped for, one of those top five guys isn't isn't what they hoped for. Like it could get ugly really, really quick on that offensive line. So they need to bring in, they need to bring in depth there. And, and then if you're looking at beyond the season, like janzy has gone after this year, Johnny Jordan's gone. Those are probably your two most stable starters right now. And, and they're both gone. There's, there's literally nobody who's proven that you can feel confident right now is going to be ready to slide into those roles next year. So I think, I mean, for this year, you're looking at at least two. But if I'm thinking 2023 is also in the picture, like as three, maybe even four, if you can swing it like you need you need some bodies in there that can come in and either contribute this season or be in line to contribute in, in 2023. Otherwise, you're going to be in the same position next year. You could have Caden Moore, Parker Clements and. Maybe Jesse Hansen, depending on how he plays this season, it's like your three, you know, the three guys you're pretty comfortable with, but then you have nobody else behind them. So, um, I think there's a lot, a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. I
2: think the, the big question, I mean, how many do you take is you take as many as you can, but I think the big question will be how many can you take? You know, this, this, uh, rebuild that, that Pry has to do at Virginia Tech isn't a – it's not a, an overnight thing. The roster – we've talked about this for, you know, six years, that the roster management has been pretty much abysmal. Uh, you know, we – I feel like I've been saying for two years that the running back room was massively over-recruited, and we're just now seeing that getting fixed. So, you know, I think uh, when you look at how mismanaged the numbers are and how, how bad the roster management has been, you can't you can't free up that much space overnight. You know there were people that on the site that were talking about you know it, having twenty twenty to twenty five people enter the transfer portal. That's just not sustainable and not going to happen. Um, not in not in one spring. You know? uh, so you, what you're what you're going to need is attrition a little bit above your average over the next few cycles or. You're going to need the NCAA to step in and actually say, let's give a little reprieve to the coaches and expand scholarship numbers a little bit. Um, but right now, as things sit, scholarship numbers are tight and you're trying to get in some help for the secondary. You're going to try to get in some help on the O-line. If you can afford it, you maybe get some D-line. You have to prioritize what type of transfers or late ads you could do from JUCO um going into the season because once uh fall camp hits you got to be under 85 scholarships i mean you, you have to be there at all times anyways but you're always under in the spring um because of guys that graduate early or uh, go to the nfl or things like that the crunch is going to be what can you add over the summer and stay at 85 uh without going to that threshold unless Hopefully the NCAA will step in and, and, and help out a little, you know, expand that number like they should have done from the beginning um, to, to give a little reprieve on the coaches and try to salvage this issue they've created of thousands of kids entering the portal and 70% of them not finding a scholarship option
1: So from that, I want to go from a conversation about perhaps what could be described as the bottom end of the portal to certainly what would be deemed to be the top. The Jordan Addison situation, for those of you that don't know the background, I'll fill you in real quick. Addison, a former four star guy out of the state of Maryland, wide receiver, ends up going to Pittsburgh freshman year. Good year. Over 600 yards receiving as a sophomore. Going into the Kenny Pickett all-star year, if you will, he absolutely goes off. 17 touchdowns, nearly 1,600 yards receiving, 100 passes caught. And now with a new receivers coach, a new offensive coordinator, and ultimately a new quarterback with Kenny Pickett going to the Steelers in last week's NFL draft, Addison is testing his value on the open market. Now, on the Pittsburgh side... The thoughts are we're being tampered with, right? I mean, there's got to be people from the USCs of the world, the Texas's of the world saying, come here and you'll get a million dollar NIL deal. But it's also a reality that wouldn't require tampering to get across to the person that could be a potential millionaire if he made that decision. For people that say the transfer portal is out of control, NIL is out of control, this is the go-to example. And the implications on recruiting at large are obviously there, right? Because let's just say Daywan Lofton pops off this year and goes for 1600 yards. Could Virginia Tech expect to get him back? So my question for you guys is, is as broad as it gets, what is what's your thought on the situation? Do you think that NCAA will put any, I get, you know, restraints on this? Bumpers in the bowling alley, if you will, or are we living in the wild, wild west and college football has changed as we know it for the foreseeable future?
0: Yeah, I think it's the latter, probably. Uh, certainly, I mean, the NCAA has no, as far as I understand it, no legal recourse after that Supreme Court decision to throw any, uh, any barriers up at this point to NIL. Um, it feels like we're just kind of stuck in the status quo as it is until. Whatever market is developing right now shakes itself out. Um, certainly seems like the crazy boosters will be re- willing to be crazy boosters for a while at least. Um, I don't know it it feels I can certainly imagine Pittsburgh's um, frustration with with what's happening there. you know everybody you can see the writing on the wall, the tampering stuff. That's been happening, um, in terms of players, teammates talking to each other, recruiting each other. You work through high school coaches and all that stuff. I mean, that, that part isn't surprising. Um, it's the, this idea that you can develop one of the top wide receivers in the country and then in May, uh, in May lose him before, before he, before a big season. So, I mean, that's the worry for every, non-blue blood school that doesn't have you know a significant booster back role in terms of an nil maybe that changes in the next two to three years but it, it certainly doesn't seem like it at this point and, and you know i think we've we've talked about it a little bit over the last year or so like you cannot expect anybody to Stick around. You should not be surprised at this point that anybody transfers, no matter how much you think they love their school, no matter how much playing time they got last year, no matter how much they love the coach and the recruiting process or anything like it's all out the window and you shouldn't you shouldn't be surprised at all. Like if somebody's if somebody enters the transfer portal, who's a two year, three year starter. Like that's just the world we live in. And and until, until the market, until market maybe shakes itself out or, or, or maybe the NCAA and Power Five and those schools figure out, figure out the right way to do this to, to, you know, to allow players to get paid their market value without kind of this 365 day free agency going on. Um, this is kind of. This is the norm when you're USC, Bama, Texas, and you've got a hole. You can, you know, you can go out and fill it if you pull the right levers and talk to the right people. Yeah. I think if you, I think if
2: you look at it from the other end of the spectrum too, and I heard, I heard this argument made, I think it was, I think it's worth noting and worth, worth looking at. So with, with, with Addison, okay. So Addison has a dynamite year, right? And, um, Pitt goes on to heights they haven't seen before, and Kenny Pickett increases his draft stock and all of this, right? Out of all of that, Pat Narduzzi gets himself a new contract, right? He gets a, what was it, like a 10 year deal. He's, I think he's over $4 million a year now. So he's sitting well, right? These coaches make all of this money. You know, you know Dabo is getting 10 year uh, you know, or like nine, $90 like 90 million dollars, something like that. You got, you, you get all these huge huge deals out there, but they're getting these deals off of the players who aren't getting anything, right? So, Jordan Addison was a major point, a major part of getting that deal for Narduzzi. You know, Narduzzi should be thanking him for being able to put him in that position to make that money. I don't have any problem. With a player capitalizing off of their value. Um, I think that everybody should have the right to make money as long as it is legal. Um, I think that you should be able to to capitalize off of that. Capitalize off of your experiences, capitalize off of your name, your brand, make a business. You know, if you're a, if you're an engineer and you create something cool and you make a billion dollars in college, congratulations, right? Like, there, there shouldn't be anything back there stopping it. Um, so capitalize on your, your ability while you have it. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think people are looking at these numbers that are thrown around and, um, I think it's, I, I don't know if it's some type of a jealousy or if it's some type of an envy or, or just an eye opener that they didn't. It have makes them uncomfortable. So it does. And it's, you know, if, if, I had a talent that somebody wanted to give me $3 million a year to do. I'm going to exploit it, right? Like we all would do that. So, you know, when you look at it from, this, from the student athlete standpoint, this is this is a little bit of a one-off. And we yes. always hear about somebody. You hear about Spencer Rattler. Um, you know, you hear about uh, the quarterback that's going to, to Tennessee. That's the, the rumored $5 million or whatever it was, $8 million nil deal and you hear about these big time deals when you spread that out across the thousands of ncaa athletes that there are out there these are one-offs the majority the overwhelming majority of of athletes are not going to get deals like this but i hope they have the opportunity to um i think there needs to be a little bit of regulation to it i think everybody could probably agree with that but we're in a capitalistic society, and, and I think you should capitalize off of your name as much as you can. I know Virginia Tech fans are going to hate that. Alabama fans probably love that right now because of the talent gap and because of the the opportunities that are given to those those stature of players. But you know, that's just the way that I think of it as a as the student athlete. I think you you think about how many guys have. Uh, essentially made their head coaches multimillionaires off of their back. Well, they got nothing for it, you know? And you can say they got an audition or an internship, if you would, to, to the NFL, or they get room and board, they get free education, they get these things. But at the end of the day, like, those are all great. Those are all great fringe benefits that you can get a- a- and a package there. But, you know, at the end of the day, their they're, the majority of these upper echelon athletes are there to play football. They're there to make it to the NFL. They're there to provide for their family. This gives them an opportunity to capitalize off their namesake before they even make it to the National Football League. I mean, we're seeing guys in high school getting NIL deals, uh, college getting NIL deals before they've played a snap. I think there's going to eventually be some type of, an, uh, of a cool-off period um, where some some of these these boosters or these companies or whoever it is pumping these money out in nil deals might not get the return on investment they thought that they were going to be getting. I think we could see a bit of a cool off there. But and maybe I'm different and people might crucify me on the site for it. But I'm all for people being able to capitalize off their name, capitalize off of their God given talents, their abilities. Whether they're great engineers, whether they're math wizards, or whether they're good at football uh, and go out there and make their money. I think anybody should be entitled to a chance to, to earn some income as long as, it's a, as long as it comes from legal means.
1: I mean, yeah, what I'll add is that of the two scenarios, right, the high school kid getting the million-dollar NIL deal or the Jordan Addison of the world – what's more likely to get phased out by the market, you know, outside of maybe the quarterback position, it's the high school kid. Because why are you going to take a gamble on a four or five star wide receiver who, you know, may very well end up being pretty good, but we know Jordan Anderson is pretty darn good at playing college football and the likelihood of that changing, barring injury, is I mean, it's a kid who's going to be a first round pick in a year. Yeah. He, he has the opportunity to at least put somewhat of an insurance policy against himself being the guy who tears the ACL and never gets anything out of it. And I don't care who you are, because, like you said, I Evan, we live in a capitalistic society. You could love your job, you could love your boss. You're not going to turn down a, I mean, who knows what his NIL situation was previously at the University of Pittsburgh. It probably wasn't much at all. It wasn't what he's going to get if he goes to Southern California. And that's just the reality of the situation. He would be making such a poor economic decision, if you will. You know, no one's going to refuse that. And I understand that Pittsburgh fans could be mad. Virginia Tech fans, you know, could also be mad because it'll probably happen to us one day. Sort of happened with Hendon Hooker, but we just didn't know it was happening at the time. (laughs) But it's it's the new nature of the beast and it's adapt or die, if you will. It's the Addison thing is interesting because it's, you
0: know, it's it's pay for play when pay for play isn't supposed to be what's happening, even though everybody knows it is. Uh, You know, I have no problem with him getting paid or anybody getting paid, but like it feels like it it feels like if if that's the deal that's going to happen if you know if if programs are going to acquire players using NIL deals because they're you know good football players or because somebody thinks they're good football players it feels like that's ultimately part of the the roster management process that eventually has to come in house like it doesn't feel sustainable for uh boosters, NIL collectives, all these, you know, outside, not people who aren't the head football coach like funneling these players and helping make these personnel decisions and all this stuff. Like like at some point they're gonna be like there's there's gonna be disagreements between boosters and coaches and collectives and competition and you know, all the drama that already has happened over the years with boosters and and how they want to be rewarded for making their investments in their favorite programs. So that's the one aspect that's like, you know, what happens when that booster coach relationship breaks down? What happens when that collective, when multiple collectives are disagreeing about what the program should do and the coaches are involved. And it it just seems like, just seems like a massive headache that has, that's going to get resolved in some manner at some point relatively soon. Um, You know, I, it's not going to limit the earnings potential of the players or anything like that. It's just a headache of the current, current system and player movement and all that stuff that um, I can't imagine coaches want to, are going to be able to deal with that for, for very long. Like that's like it, like dealing with boosters has always been a, uh, just a, just a headache for head coaches. You have to, you have to schmooze the booster, stay on their good side. And as soon as you, as soon as you lose their support, they're lining up the buyout to, to come replace you. Um, and now you're going to, now they're going to be involved in like the player personnel decisions that you previously had full autonomy over. Uh, I, you know, it's just an interesting development that's going to change kind of college football coaching and all that stuff I think you look at it
2: too and 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 another aspect that hasn't you know you talk about the boosters that have been around forever and that relationship with the head coach and the compliance department and the university you already are walking that that slope that kind of slippery slope there and now you're going to add in agents right like you know if you want to do an nil deal with the local mattress firm they can just come to you and probably work that out for a couple hundred dollars for a you know a radio slot but if you're going to be sponsored by beats by dre or you're going to be sponsored by apple or you're going to be sponsored by some of these major major companies out there with you know six seven figures you're probably going to have an agent so now you have somebody that's working these deals on your behalf outside of the university and around the university putting a lot of people possibly in a bind. So, you know, I think there's, I think there are some avenues to tweak this to where everybody wins. Um, Right now it was, it was put together uh, without major oversight and without, you know, forethought in my opinion. Um, but I do, I do see some things in there that I think are really good in the NIL world, but there needs to be some type of restrictions, whether it's agent restrictions or, um, you know, how many NIL deals you could do. I don't know. I don't really know how it's going to be structured, but there has to be some type of regulations in there. I don't think you can really limit how much somebody can make or, the opportunities that they can have, but the, the NCAA and the universities need to maybe have more oversight and maybe have more of their hand involved in the process so they know kind of what's more going on and, and regulate it on a on a on a bigger scale. I think this is much bigger than what the NCAA envisioned.
0: I think Evan, just one last thing touched on there was the agent piece. I think what people don't realize is college football agents agents that work these nil deals do not have to be accredited or have a law degree or anything they could literally just be a an undergraduate student that buddied up to a player and is now representing him as his agent Um, there's no oversight in terms of who's representing players as agents and all that stuff um I think I read today, you know, a normal professional sports agent that goes through the full accreditation process that's, you know, whatever it's called, credentialed with the Players Association. Those guys take those guys take four percent of a salary cut. Um But for an endorsement deal or a sponsorship deal, they'll get 15 percent or 20 percent. And that's what these NIL deals, if you have an agent, that that's what that's what's happening is, is you're getting there are undoubtedly, uh, not, not people that are advising the player in the best interests that are, are making lots of money without, without the same guardrails that, you know, the, in, the agent process and, in, in professional sports has. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. And it probably, I mean, we're all talking about this. This probably comes down to the players getting paid salaries to play by the universities and then collectively bargaining just like the pro sports do where the players give up something for guaranteed slice of the revenue. That's how the salaries markets are set. And whether you, whether you do anything on the outside is, is, is extra and and is open. But, um, I, I just don't see how you can reg You can't regulate NIL deals because, but you can even out, um, the market as far as who's getting paid and how much people are actually getting paid by the, their actual employer, um, which is what the NCAA has fought against for years. But I mean, that's, that's gotta be where it's going. And that's gonna, and then that dominoes them to, you know, your top 30 schools who bring in the most revenue are the only ones that can compete, um, compete at a certain level. So then like Alabama and Texas are in one division in Iowa state and, Kansas State are in another division because of the revenues are just different. And that's how the markets play out.
1: Yeah, no, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing to grapple with because on one end, you know, you think about the player side, right? And you have these boosters who are throwing out million dollar NIL deals or maybe not a million dollars, but in a not insignificant amount of money to a player who's completely unproven. Say it's the backup quarterback. Well, that guy remains as the backup for a few years, and suddenly that booster might get cued in on the new shinier toy despite the fact that the coach feels that he's developing him, and eventually he'll get to the point where he needs to be. Well, if that money comes off the table, then suddenly you have a free agent. And on the other side, you know, looking at the schools in professional sports, which – I mean, listen to the entire conversation we just had. It is not unfair to compare this to professional sports at this time. Well, the Pittsburgh Pirates are aware that their best player will eventually get poached away by the New York Yankees. But that guy's on a five-year guaranteed contract. And towards the end of his contract, the Pittsburgh Pirates have the opportunity to trade him to another team on a short-term loan or deal so they can at least get some value in return. But as you mentioned about the roster management, Doug, I mean, you're Pittsburgh. You're in a situation where Jordan Addison was going to be the key to your offense. And now we're less than six months outside of the season. He's gone. And you get nothing in return for that other than, as was previously mentioned as well, that nice little contract extension the head coach got. So we are, you know, it, whether you think it's a slippery slope in a good way or a bad way, the dominoes are falling and the the speed is increasing from that slope. And it's going to open up so many different doors that – I don't think anyone can say with a high degree of confidence what college football is going to look like 5 years down the road because either some serious guardrails that are legally tenuous at this point are going to go up doesn't seem particularly likely or this thing will develop as it will so it's uh it's weird to be in a transitional period but I guess uh you know whether it's Mark Emmerich or Doug Bowman we're all kind of experiencing it in real time and it's, it's
0: <laughs> hell yeah, a, the,
1: hell of an experience
0: <laughs> the the NCA transformation committee is like meeting right now to like rework how the entire NCA works there's absolutely no chance that they get it right on the first try <laughs> like they're gonna they're gonna come up with all these this new division set up and new rules and governing rules for d1 football and d2 basketball and all this other stuff and remake the ncaa there's no way it's like it's the right structure right from the beginning like this is going to take years and years and years of once 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 there's a strategy right now there's no strategy first of all or no developing you know regulatory environment whatever you want to call it there, <laughs> this is the wild west where we're just kind of waiting to see what shakes out. But eventually there's going to be a strategy, but that's going to take like years of implementation.
1: All I can say is that for those of you that were getting comfortable with Miami constantly floundering and staying mediocre in the current environment, that does not seem to be particularly likely. That guy is crazy down there. John Diaz, their booster. <laughs>
0: He 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 announced a stadium plan to build him a new stadium that involved tearing down a high school that is currently in use. Like, how much money do you have to have to be like, we're going to build this stadium, but I need to tear down the local high school first? And the
1: orphanage right next to it. <laughs> Come on. It's absurd. Indeed. All right. We've been running a little long. So last thing I got for you, a number of Hokies taken in the NFL draft. Uh, James Mitchell, who I guess if I told you before the season, James Mitchell would be the first Hokie taken in the draft. You wouldn't be surprised. If I told you if it was in the late fifth round, you probably would be surprised. But him, Varno, Smith, and Tanuta are the guys taken. Uh, number of other guys, including Brock Hoffman, Trey Turner, signing UDFA deals. Were there any major surprises, whether it be how far guys fell? Maybe they were taken earlier or taken and you didn't think they would be taken. And for the UDFA guys, how many legitimate 53-man roster opportunities do you see out of that group?
2: The the most interesting one to me was uh, Luke Tenuta going before Lucita Smith. I think, I think a, a lot of people – probably realized that Luke Tenuto would be drafted, but he would probably be drafted late. Um he prob- he could have really benefited in my opinion coming back for another year, but he was ready to to test the waters and you know, he got selected. I think he's going to have a decent role um and, and can I think he could he can have a good career, uh, but he's just not as developed as most people would think going into the uh the NFL draft. I thought Lacidas was much more developed and maybe a better fit um, in the NFL. So I was surprised that they kind of flip-flopped there. I think Tenuta does have a higher upside, so maybe that's kind of what it came down to. But that was the surprise for me there. And I thought Varna was interesting because he could have gone anywhere from second to seventh. I mean, he, his his combine was unreal. He uh, he looked great, um, and and teams can fall in love with that speed. Um, and I think that was kind of the main thing why people kept saying, oh, he could. Don't be don't be shocked if he could creep into that two three range. Um, you know, four five six. I think was probably more realistic looking at his production, uh, especially in the last year when he fell off a little bit and was tasked to do some different things. There's some questions on if he's actually an edge or if he's a outside linebacker. But you know, when you, when you look at his whole package and what he has, um, he's another guy that's got a, a high ceiling. And I mean, he's a freak of an athlete. So, you know, it was when you have guys like that, you have what guys would typically, could tempi- typically overpay for, um, and draft him much higher than he needed to be. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think six is is bad for him. I think it's it was a little surprising. I would I would have seen him go a little bit earlier, but like I said, he's he is he's still a raw football player. You know, he was a safety in Juco, moved a linebacker, linebacker at tech, moved to D end, doesn't have a whole lot of stability at one position, still learning the ins and outs of being an edge. So, you know, I think he's versatile and I think his speed definitely saved him. If he didn't have that that speed. You know, he could have fallen completely out of it. Uh, that was kind of the big thing: was, was showcasing that speed at the combine. So, you know, I think a lot of people will point to Trey Turner not getting drafted as a surprise. I didn't think he would get drafted. Um, look at look at his production at Virginia Tech. I think he's a I think he's a good player. I think he's very athletic. He wasn't asked to do too much. Uh, he had a bit of injury concerns. He never really gotten bigger uh, since he was on campus. He was always kind of the same guy from freshman year on. You compare him to a guy like Isaiah Ford, who was clearly, in my opinion, a much better wide receiver in a seventh-round pick. You compare him to Cam Phillips, who uh, was undrafted and, and has had a really tough time of cracking it in the NFL, um, if he's even still attempting it. I'm not sure if he's still on any practice squads or not. Uh, so I, I think... People thought, you know, you look at Virginia Tech's offense and you think Trey Turner um, was the headliner, but he was kind of the headliner on a very mediocre offense that ran a limited route tree. And when you when you look at transitioning from that to the NFL, he's a great athlete, but just a, a decent wide receiver. So I think he could probably get some practice squad time. I think maybe he gets some, get some reps in. Um, He could maybe be activated at certain times. I'm not sure he's an active roster um, type of guy. You know, one of the guys I'm interested in seeing, just I don't know if he'll have a chance to stick around or not, is is, is Oscar Shadley. But that's, you know, you never think about a long snapper. I don't know how many teams carry. I don't know how long they're in the NFL. Are they like punters where you sign one and you keep him for 20 years? Or do they rotate fairly often? But he was he was kind of an unsung hero a little bit at Virginia Tech. I think, you know, you never noticed him, which was a good thing. And I think he's really, really talented at what he does. But he's in a niche kind of position. Everybody needs one. But do you only need one or do you need more than one? I don't really know how that works in the NFL. But I could see him being a guy that could maybe stick around for a few years if he can catch on with the right team
0: of the guys that at least <laughs> that got that signed of as undrafted free agents, obviously they have a uh, big old uphill battle to make this tea, but like Blackshear and Buffalo, he's a guy that we talked a lot all fall about uh his usage and that Virginia tech should have used him more, I think as when you, when you come in as an undrafted free agent, the more you can do the better. And I, I think his is, He's a, he's a versatile guy that he can, he can carry the ball as a tailback, catch the ball out of the slot or, or out of the backfield. Um, and, and then he's also put a good, a good bit on specialty. So I think, you know, when you're fighting to make a roster or even for, you know, an undrafted free agent, you're, you're fighting to get out of each mini camp. Um, and then you're fighting in August to get through training camp. Um, you know, that kind of versatility helps. Um, So, so he's a guy that I think you look at. Um, and then Hoffman's an interesting one going to Cleveland where we play with White Teller. Um, kind of got the same sense of their mentality as, as offensive linemen. So, you know, probably a good spot for him to go to where, uh, you know, if he can make the team or at least impress them enough that, that, you know, he, he can learn, he can learn in that environment a little bit. Um, and I think the last thing you have to say is just good for James Mitchell coming off the season ending injury. Definitely did not finish his career the way he was envisioning. Um, and he still gets drafted in the fifth round. So, you know, good for him to work his way back from, from that injury and and stay a draft pick. I think that's, that's quite an accomplishment in terms of like he could have fallen off the board completely with that, with that injury and with people's concerns about him. So, um, you know, the, the Lions probably aren't going to be any good because they're, they're never that good, but maybe that opens up a chance for him to play, play more than, um, more than some other rookie tight ends.
1: All right, gentlemen, it's been a good hour. Any final thoughts before we uh, wrap this thing up? I'm open for NIL deals on just for
2: men for this touch of gray. I've got coming kind of in on my beard, still trying to get to Doug's, you know, his, his technique, not as clean as his, but. But I need a little, I need a little nil help. So, so let's let's get that deal going.
0: We'll get a just, adjust from deal, and then, you know, Dollar Shave Club seems like they advertise a lot on podcasts. So maybe maybe we can get attract their attention.
1: All I know is I'm watching the Mets play the Braves right now. The Mets, uh, what's the score? It looks like they're about to maybe blow it. Runner on first. They're up three nothing. Top of the ninth. One out. So. I'll say the Mets complete the doubleheader sweep. And you can all laugh at me tomorrow if that's wrong. Coverage begins at 1230 on SNY for (laughs) the fourth game of the series is what I read. But, yeah, we'll be back soon, folks. Obviously, VT Scoop 24-7 Sports, the place to go. If you're there, you like what you're seeing, well, there's one way to get more. It's to sign up to be a VIP. Evan, tell them about the terms and conditions for that.
2: Yeah, first month is only a dollar. After that, 9.95 a month. Uh, and after you've uh, done your promotional period, if you signed up on a promo, you'll get Paramount Plus included in your subscription as well.
1: Hard to say no to that. Don't know how we can afford to keep paying Matei, but again, that's for the uh, the suits to decide. <laughs> I'm just the lowly podcast host. But yeah, Andrew, Alex, Doug Bowman, Evan Watkins, inside the tunnel, VT Scoot 24/7 Sports, rate review subscribe and we'll talk to you soon as always go Hokies the chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus
0: why did he kill his family the answer
1: lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie to the can model where desire leads to deception I ended up spending 12 and 15 thousand dollars a day it was addictive and obsession leads to murder
2: who did this to your family
1: You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control-Alt-Desire, now streaming on Paramount+.